Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online and on site today. Uh, I'm back from vacation. I uh, had a few weeks off and just want to start by saying thank you to all of the volunteers and, and the people who stood in this place each Sunday. Uh, to uh, Sean and Andrew and Thena, who allowed me to take a little bit of a break. It's wonderful to be able to come back, be a little bit more refreshed, and I wasn't aware of it, but apparently it's Pink Shirt Sunday. So, I don't know if anyone else noticed, but uh, completely unplanned, Ron, Andrew, and I all wore pink shirts today. So, uh, if you wore a pink shirt, fantastic, glad to have you with us. If not, I don't know, did you notice that, Andrew? Now you did, but now you're, everyone's going to watch for it now, right? Andrew's done coming up here, but Andrew will be back, or uh, Ron will be back up in a few minutes. But yeah, well, welcome to Pink Shirt Sunday. <laughs> so it's good to be back, uh, feeling refreshed and anticipating the season ahead. Uh, I'm really looking forward to fall kickoff, our kickoff cook-off, with uh, pie as the theme. Anybody else? Yes? Yeah, absolutely. So what does that mean? Savory pies, pot pies, chicken pot pies, uh, shepherd's pie, cottage pie, even quiche, any sort of savory pies. There's one aspect of competition for that, or not even competition, even just sharing is wonderful. But then also your sweet pies. Who doesn't love an apple pie, a cherry pie, rhubarb, strawberry pie, maybe blueberry pie is my personal favorite. Uh, there's all, <laughs> I might not be a judge, maybe I am a judge. I'll give you a little, little inside scoop on what the judge might want for a blueberry pie with a uh, nice, nice crust. On there. We'll see. A couple weeks. Hope you'll join us and participate in that. Well, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we're going through a series called 10 Words to Live By, where we're going through what's commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, which are found in, wait a second, we haven't had this quiz for a while, Exodus chapter 20. See, we're learning already. Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. And these are the commands that God gave to the nation of Israel, these ten words that govern their relationship with God and govern their relationship with one another. Now, if you're with us in the first week that I was speaking on this, I referenced a survey that had been done that asked modern-day people, how relevant are these Ten Commandments still for us today? And you might remember the results from some of that, and they were a little bit interesting and disturbing at the same time. You see, the, the survey revealed that the first four commandments that deal with governing our relationship between a person and God, those first four commandments had fallen to a rating of like 25% of people said those still had bearing upon us today. But then the remaining six that talk about our relationship with one another, 95% of people said those are still relevant for today, which was encouraging that, that 95% of people almost universally said, yes, those things that we've already covered a little bit, things like, uh, you know, th things like murder, and we're going to continue to talk about other ones in the days ahead. I just talked about that one last week. Said, yes, this is still important for our world today, but there was something that was disappointing in that. You see, of these six, there's one in particular that I believe is the most damaging, that I believe is the most devastating when broken, and it actually was at the bottom of the list of all six of those, the bottom of that list, and it's the one we're going to talk about today. And it came in near the bottom of the list in relevance. And the comment we're going to talk about today reminds me of this time a number of years ago, when it was right around Christmas season. And Nadine and I had planned to go out for a nice evening, kind of a, a shopping date. And it was going to be this night where she was going to meet me at the church, and when I got off work, we were going to head off and have dinner at our favorite restaurant, and then we're going to go shop for a little while and buy some gifts for the family and for some friends, and after we had successfully done that, we were going to head to a cafe, and we were going to drink hot chocolate and just sit there and stare in each other's eyes, and 
this beautiful, right? This, it was like this hallmark moment, right? Walking hand in hand through the cool night air as snow lightly falls upon us. And I have my, my toque on, and she has her warm scarf and a little red beret. It was, it was this beautiful thing that was going to happen. We'd, we'd eventually walk and come to the street light, and we would stop, and she would look into my eyes, and she would kiss me. <laughs> None of that would have happened. <laughs> so <laughs> I build these things up in my mind sometimes. They actually never come to fruition. It's, it's one of the faults I have, I guess. <laughs> but we were going to go out and have a nice evening together. And she stopped by the church, and we're about to leave. And as we are heading out, I'm walking up the final door to the church, about to go out for this beautiful evening. And as we're at this point, I can see this lady walking towards us with purpose. And she's walking straight towards us, and she got closer to us. I could see that, that she was absolutely distraught. And she said to me, she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I just found out my husband had an affair, and I don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I was about to go on a date with my wife, and then, and then this situation confronted. I, I looked at this lady, and I looked at Nadine, and I looked at this lady, I looked at Nadine, and then, and then Nadine, bless her heart, simply said, I'll see you at home. The church needs you. And she left. And this lady and I went and had a conversation where she shared the story that had taken place in her life. And she cried. And we prayed because her entire world had just been shattered by this news she received. Now, unfortunately, as a pastor, I get called into these situations maybe more than you would expect. And that is why Exodus 20, verse 14, we find the seventh word to live by, that clearly and concisely God says to his people then, and he says to his people now, you shall not commit adultery. Welcome back from vacation, Pastor Mark. (laughs) Let's just jump into the deep end, why don't we, (laughs) as we talk about this one. You know, it's okay. I I knew this was the topic when I was coming back, and and in some ways I'm glad we get to talk about this because I think it's one of the most important words to live by. It's something that doesn't get discussed very much in in, in certain circles, and particularly not from a platform within a church. It seems to be something that doesn't come up very often, and so I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it today, about this one of the most important words to live by because sometimes it seems like we take it too lightly. Now, if you're with us, as a parent, I want to give you a sense that, you know, due to the subject matter of this, we're going to rate this sermon PG, right? And if I don't stick to my notes, maybe even PG-13, we'll see how that goes, <laughs> And as you consider this topic, you might already be thinking, well, I'm not married, so I can take a pass on this one, right? It's not relevant for me. Or you might be thinking to yourself, well, I am married, but I'm not currently planning to have an affair. And so tick that box, and we can just move on and kind of tune out what's going to be talked about here. But here's what I want you to know, is that whether you are single and ready to mingle, or whether you are engaged and ready for the next stage, or even if you are married but not yet buried, (laughs) Jesus has something to teach us about this, all of us, something to teach all of us about this. Because there's a deeper obedience to be sought when we look at the seventh word, a deeper obedience to be sought than a, a deeper obedience that surpasses simply not sleeping with somebody who's not our spouse. You see, because on one hand, the seventh word to live by warns us against the dangers of adultery, but it also calls us to something. It also calls us to preserve the purity of our relationship with God and our relationship with others by honoring God's plan for marriage. Now, if we're going to talk about this, we have to understand a couple of things. The first one is this, is that any time a betrayal in a relationship happens, it hurts. Right? We probably agree with that. It hurts. But adultery presumes, presumes 
a hurt within the context of marriage specifically. You see, betrayals hurt. And the deeper the relationship, the deeper the commitment, the more devastating that betrayal may be. And the more wide-ranging the damage may be. You know, we can think of examples of this. I remember back in, like, grade one, right, had these girls that would chase the boys, and if the boys caught you, or if the girls caught you, they, they would kiss the boys. And I remember one time my friend got caught, and I was, like, super jealous. Like, I was running away this whole time, but then he got caught, and he got kissed. And I'm like, whoa, what gives? Like, betrayal was happening. I remember one time in high school. I walked past this girl who was just sobbing by her locker, and, and I, I didn't know exactly why, but I heard later on it's because she saw another girl wearing her boyfriend's football jacket, like, like, and the drama that that caused for like the next week. It was amazing. Maybe as a young adult, if you date somebody for, you know, for a week or two, and then, and then he breaks up with you, you, you probably get mad, call your friends over, and you know, watch breakup movies, and talk about how much of a jerk he was and didn't deserve you. But, but if you date for a few years, and then she cheats on you, well, your heart's broken. It's it broken to the point where you might even lose your appetite for a while. You, you may even call in sick to work as you mourn the loss of this, of this hope for the future. See, the deeper the level of commitment and, and the more damaging and the more heartbreak that we feel. But the term adultery is reserved specifically for marriage because there's something uniquely destructive about it. There's something uniquely destructive about it within the context of marriage. And we have to also understand the timeless biblical view of marriage to understand what that uniqueness is. And we find this, it begins in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, but Jesus actually quotes this for us as well when we get to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 19. And he says this in verse 4 and 6. He says, haven't you heard, and then he quotes Genesis 2.24, haven't you heard that, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, here at West Meadows, we love and we welcome all people to be among us. But this is the basis of the biblical view of marriage that we promote and that we invest in. And there's good reason for it. And there's a few reasons I want to highlight for you. Number one is this, is that this view of marriage is as per God's original design. Is that marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman. And there is therefore a degree of exclusivity that exists within this. It sets the boundaries within the marriage context. Within the bonds of marriage, it establishes at the heart of the marriage there is two chairs. There's a husband and there's a wife who sit on those chairs. And if anyone else is invited into that heart, they are a stranger to that bond. And these two people, they enter into this agreement. They enter into this sacred union by standing before their family, friends, and God and exchanging vows. And these vows that they exchange are not simply niceties. I promise to love, honor, obey, tease, and tickle. It's not just about niceties. It's about making a covenant promise. It's a sacred promise. That means that there's an interconnectedness as these two people weave their lives together. And God has declared that the weaving of these two lives together is holy. And that he is the one who has unified those things. And this, this holy union by God therefore has a degree of permanence to it as well. It is entering into a lifelong shared journey of love and grace and forgiveness as they encourage each other in the world, as, as they hold each other up in the world, 
It talks in the Bible about how three strands, that the, that the husband, the wife, and God together is something that cannot be easily undone and should not be easily undone and should not be separated by anything in this world. And when the two become one in this manner, there's this unifying factor that happens relationally and it, and it unifies them spiritually, but it also actually unifies them physically. Because as we know, that after these vows are exchanged, after this, this, uh, this ceremony has taken place and these promises have been made and God has united them together relationally, he's united them together spiritually, then they unite together physically as this marriage covenant is consummated. Consummated means to, to make complete, to seal, to achieve unity. And that happens through the physical unity of sexual union that takes place. You see, because sexual union is not just about procreation. The biblical view of it is not just about procreation. It is seen as the initiatory, but then also the repeated expression of the love that exists within that bond. It's the initiatory, consummatory act that happens, but that's also the repeated act to express, to be able to reaffirm, to remind, and praise God to enjoy the other person. Amen? And it reminds us and it reaffirms the love and the commitment that exists within this covenant. And when you meet people who have been married for a long time and, and understand this, this biblical view of marriage, I don't know about you, but I find it inspiring. Anybody else? Inspired by people who have had a lifelong, faithful marriage. You know, this past Friday, Nadine and I celebrated our 27th year of marriage. And over those 27 years, there have been some highs and, and there have been some lows. I'm sure all of us can understand and can relate to that. But through all those things, it has sought to draw us together. And we've continued to grow in greater love and in greater commitment to each other. And we honestly hope and we, we honestly pray that the 27 years that we've spent as a married couple is an encouragement and, and is an inspiration to those who are a season behind us. Just as those who are a season ahead of us are an inspiration and encouragement to us. And I just want to take a minute to celebrate some of that. And I'm kind of curious. I was wondering about this as I was writing this week. About, about the longevity of marriage that exists within our congregation. And so I'm curious. If there's anybody here who has been married 30 years or more. I knew I was going to start safe. I knew that was going to be fine. Okay. Keep your hand up if it's 35 years. 40 years. I should have my hand down now, but I'm demonstrating. Right? 45 years. We're getting lower. 50. Ooh. 50. I think I know who our winners are going to be. Uh, 55. Oh, we, okay. I got to go single digits. Do I have to go? Don and Jerry, how many years? 61 years. 61. Ruthie and Sterling. Sterling has to check with Ruthie. 67 years. Beautiful. And I saw hands over here too. How many years? 15, right at 60. We'll call it 60. Beautiful. Yeah, see, we're optimistic. We're going to make it to 60, right? There you go, 60. Isn't that, we can celebrate these things. These, for those of you who are, who are on the verge of getting married, these are those who are setting the legacy. These are those who are, who, are, who are showing us the direction to go, who can be our mentors on how to have a lifelong marriage together in a godly fashion. So that's worth celebrating, amen? But here's the thing. This joy, 
and this affirmation as we celebrate this long faithfulness according to God's plan, that is the exact opposite of what a person experiences as a result of adultery. That joy and affirmation is the exact opposite of what happens when adultery comes into the situation. See, the Bible and society are agreed on this fact, is that most often that when we talk about adultery, what we're talking about is a definition of an extramarital sexual relationship taking place. This intimacy that is meant to exist within the bond of one person and their covenant partner. Whether we're speaking about uh, emotional, relational, or sexual relationships, they're meant to exist exclusively to be sought, to be fulfilled within the bonds of that covenant partnership. But the presence of a stranger being brought in, being brought in within the boundaries of that covenant, it does three things. Number one, it violates the exclusivity of it. It corrupts the sacredness of it. And it separates the permanence of it by inviting a stranger into the midst of that one thing. And sadly, there are some here who know this all too well. There are some here I know who who have experienced the pain and the damage that adultery can cause. I'm sure there are some here who, as a child, you endured your parents fighting and the tension and maybe even the end of that marriage because of the issue of adultery. Others here may have friends or family that you know where their, their marriage survived, but there's tension that just never seems to fully go away. And even though the marriage has survived and the families continue on, it will never be the same like it was before. And I know there are some who even of your own stories that one person made a choice that broke both hearts. And the ripple effects just go to all areas of life. See, it's fitting to see why this seventh word against adultery is found between the, fifth, between the sixth word for murder and the eighth word for theft. Because adultery kills the joy and the love and the trust by stealing what was exclusively belonging to another person. And the Bible takes this very seriously. You see, in the Old Testament, adultery was considered to be a capital, uh, uh, an offense of capital punishment. They would stone you to death for this. In the New Testament, this is continued, and, and even is Jesus declares it to be one of the only lawful reasons for divorce. And then we get to the book of Proverbs as well. And Proverbs talks extensively about this. The, the book of Proverbs, most of which is written by King Solomon, who is known for having this God, incredible, God-given wisdom. And, and in that book, we see all sorts of warnings and guidance for various issues of life. But when it comes to adultery... Solomon takes time in most of chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, almost entire chapters, very early on, giving strong, no-nonsense warnings against this very thing. And to give you an example of this, in, in Proverbs chapter 6, he writes this, beginning in verse 27, 28. He says, can a man scoop fire onto his lap? without his clothes being burnt? And and can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? And he continues up in verse 32. He says, but a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. And we know from the stories and from from experience with this, that not only does he destroy himself or herself, but for that matter, those around them as well. You see, the ripple effects of this sin are extensive. They go beyond just the person. They, they go beyond just the marriage and the family initially affected. Think of the time when this was initially given to Israel. They're, they're all gathered together, starting their journey through the desert. 
in this very tight-knit community. And it was a different context socially than it was for us. See, for us right now, you often look at a home, it's mom and dad and two and a half kids, statistically. But back in the time when these words were first spoken to them, it wasn't just mom, dad, and a couple of kids. You would have households that had three or four generations all living together. And one moment of indiscretion. One moment did not just affect mom and dad. It didn't just affect mom, dad, and kids. It affected three to four generations. And if that offense was committed with another man or woman who was married, you can add on another four generations. You could see how one act of indiscretion within this community of Israel, and they needed each other, and they needed the relationship with God, they needed to keep the relationship with each other, they needed to do this to successfully enter into the promised land, to walk the path that God had selected for them. And this one moment of indiscretion, when we consider the size and the makeup of these homes, it could easily impact 10, 15, 20 people or more by one act. And if you affect two households in eight generations... 20 people or more, you have now had an impact, put a dent within the community itself. You see, then and now, homes that are going through tension and dysfunction draw resources from the community. But faithful, healthy homes are good, not just for the individual, not just for the family, but also for the church, and also for our relationship and witness of God, and also for the community as a whole. You see, so on one hand, the seventh word to live by warns us against the dangers of adultery because of all the damage that it does. But it also calls us to preserve the purity of our relationship with God and the purity of our relationship with one another, and we can do so by honoring God's plan for marriage. So, how are we doing? We doing okay? okay? We can talk about hard things? That's okay? No? Yes, okay. we're going to pause. We're good? We're going to keep talking about hard things. We've got one more hard thing to talk about, so I just got to check before we get harder. <laughs> we do need to talk about hard things because this is the real stuff of life. This is the real stuff of life that derails people and derails families and communities. It can derail churches even if, if this seeps into leadership within a church. And the Bible and Jesus himself has words of encouragement and wisdom for us, though. And so it's to these that I want to turn now as we... As we start to talk about, so what do we do about this? What does this look like? How do we combat this? Is what I want to turn to now. And I, and I figure at the beginning here, I don't have to work too hard to convince you to avoid adultery. Like I, I imagine there's, there's, for the most part, I think it's safe to assume there's sort of a universal idea that adultery bad, right? We can, we can agree with that. You know, of all the years that I've counseled couples, and, and over the years that Nadine and I have done marriage, we've done marriage prep for over 90 couples in the last 16, almost 17 years, Never once has anyone said, no, adultery, two thumbs up. They've always said, you know, they hate the idea, that they're opposed to it, that they think it'll never happen to us. And yet somehow it becomes part of some of their stories along the way. How does that happen? Well, the way it happens, I think, is this, is that that people don't just stumble into it. You see, it typically begins as something else. Because when we understand it, adultery actually is a symptom of a deeper root issue. And Jesus spoke about what this deeper root issue was in the Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew chapter 5, when he says this, beginning in verse 27. He says, you've heard it said, quoting Exodus 20, verse 14, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. 
See, Jesus here is not equating lust with adultery. He is here identifying lust as the root cause of adultery to be dealt with. And this is why the seventh word to live by is not just for those who are married. The seventh word to live by is for anybody who is tempted by lust. And that's a much broader group of people. Because I think it's safe to say that that is essentially all people. Now here's the interesting thing about this word lust. Is, is in the Bible, the way that it's, it's, it's interpreted and used is not as clear as we think it might be. See, technically this word lust can mean passionate desire. And passionate desires can be good or they can be bad. They, they essentially, essentially, passionate desire is a neutral feeling until the object associated with it and the motive is determined. It's one of these things that is neutral until the object and the motivation is determined. I'll give you an example. I can have a passionate desire for food, which is okay. It's healthy to eat food. It, it, it sustains our bodies. It keeps us alive. I can have a healthy, passionate desire to eat food. But boy, you give me a plate of tacos, that becomes less healthy. <laughs> that becomes a different type of passion because I, I will look at tacos and there is no end to Taco Tuesdays at times. They become an unhealthy addiction. And they can be an unhealthy sense of, of gluttony when it comes. You may have your own food. Maybe it's pie for you and you got to be careful on kickoff, you know, kickoff, cookoff. For me, it's tacos. If we ever did a taco theme, forget about it, right? It, it's unhealthy for that. But you can have a passion desire for food, but it can be used for an unhealthy passion. Same thing happens within leadership. You can have a passionate desire to be a leader because you have this God-given desire to, to guide and protect people that God has brought under your care. But that can also be taken to an unhealthy level when it becomes abusive, when you become a tyrant over those people. You can have a passionate desire for things like, like money. The Bible doesn't condemn money in and of itself. Money is a neutral thing. The object, the purpose, the motivation behind it is what determines if it is bad or if it is good, because we know that greed and the love of money, the pursuit of it above all other things leads to all sorts of evil. And the same thing happens with sex. Within the context of marriage, as that consummating, repeated expression of love that reminds and affirms within the covenant that has been established, it is a beautiful thing. But when it is object, when it's object and when its motivation is towards another, and it breaks the bond. And it becomes adultery, it becomes a bad thing. Now the concept of lust, most often for us, does lean heavily towards being associated with something that is desirable but forbidden. That's more often how we think about this term. And that's how we'll look at it going forward. But we have to understand that part of the solution to overcoming lust is not just about eliminating it, but about perhaps redirecting. I'll get to this more in a minute. And so the definition we understand when we talk about adultery within this context is that lust is this strong, self-indulgent hunger to consume an object of desire to satisfy a craving. In 1 John 2.16, it's referred to as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And keeping those terms within the realm of adultery, we're here talking about lusting after a person. Uh, lusting after a person who is not our spouse. Maybe it's a person that goes to the gym with you. Maybe it's a person who's a coworker that you find attractive. Maybe it's something on a TV program or a certain series that you binge on Netflix. Maybe it's something that you habitually view on the internet. And I'm not speaking here about just like a casual glance. I'm not speaking here about, about noticing that somebody's attractive. That, 
Those are natural things that happen. There's nothing ungodly about about a casual glance. Noticing something is attractive. And we know the difference here, because what I'm talking about is that lingering look. That evaluating, assessing, plotting, lingering, meditative look is what I'm talking about. That can cause that desire to burn and need to be satisfied. And has power to reorientate how we view people and how we view even our lives. That person that perhaps is attractive at the gym reaches a point where you say, oh, actually my my gym crush. And we change our gym schedule to match theirs. The coworker that we always seek to do a project with, or that we, we try to have lunch with, plotting, planning, assessing, something in media, anything from, from certain programs on TV to romance novels to, to things that are on the internet that lead us to this meditative fantasy world, this meditative look. This lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. That, and here's what the damaging thing of it is. Is that whatever that person, that, that person ceases to be a person. They cease to be a fellow image bearer of God. They cease to be a loved child of God. And they simply become an object to be consumed. See the difference? See the damage that does? When a person is devalued and simply becomes an object to be consumed, to satisfy a selfish craving. That's lust. And this is one of the reasons that pornography in particular is such a particular plague upon our society. You see, it it promises gratification without commitment. And it has become socially acceptable. It's become part of the primary definition of intimacy and relationship and love within our current society is gratification without commitment. And it alters a person's view of sex and of marriage in an unbiblical fashion. All the while whispering that timeless lie, it won't hurt to look. It's not hurt, it's a victimless thing. It doesn't hurt anybody. All the while trapping and shaping the minds of our youth regarding sexuality. Leading towards marital dissatisfaction and dysfunction, becoming one of the leading causes of divorce. 68% of divorces nowadays reference regular use of pornography as a reason because of this lustful intent that objectifies and leads to the trafficking of millions of people, 98% of which are women and children. We can see why Jesus said, when you look with lustful intent... You've already committed adultery in your heart. And it's a sin. You see, if we're to live by the seventh word, it's not enough to just be morally opposed to adultery. We must also protect ourselves and honor our marriages and the institution of marriage by addressing the root sin of this, which is lust. But Satan has convinced us of something. Satan has convinced us that lust is something we can just manage on our own. That we can just tame it. If I have enough willpower, if I just, if I just be good enough long enough, I can, I can overcome this. I can tame it. But, folks, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that we are to tame lust, that we are to manage it. Jesus' words in Matthew 5 continue in this passage. 
As we finish this section in verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be cast into hell. See, this is one of those passages that we have to read literally, not literally, right? Otherwise, we're all going to walk around with pirate hooks and have, like, nicknames of patches, right? Which, which isn't going to be helpful for anything. See, what Jesus is getting at here is that the eye, the hand, the foot, the tongue, all these things, they all serve at the pleasure of the heart. And the heart is the beginning place of that meditative, assessing, evaluating, consuming look. That's actually an issue of the heart, not an issue of the eye, not an issue of the hand. That's an issue of the heart. And what this passage tells us is that, is that the tactic is not to tame it. Don't just try to manage it. it. Try to manage and tame the lust that exists in a person's heart. This passage is saying, don't tame it, slay it, is what it's saying. Cut out the cancer. Cut out the cancer to your relationship with God, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with family, your relationship with the community. Cut it out. Colossians 3.5, Paul puts it this way. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put it to death, he says. Whether it be sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires. This is not about taming it. This is about put it to death. Slay it. Don't try to tame it. I got this. I can handle it. Have you ever said that? Ever tried that? How does that work out? I tell you, it works out for me. Yeah, I know. I'm not immune to this either. I wish when I became a pastor, I would just kind of glow and, and it would be immune for me to be able to sin. But I have the same challenges, the same temptations as anybody else out there. And how does this work? Well, we think, I can handle it. I can manage it. The familiar pattern, we do good for a little while. We have victory. We have success. We get proud of ourselves. Like, hey, I'm doing it this time. But then we have a bad day. Stress starts to ramp up a little bit. We start to let our guard down. Maybe we stop caring as much, thinking we deserve more than we're actually getting. And we give the enemy a foothold. And in that foothold, we end up falling. That's what happens when we try to tame it, when we simply try to manage it. But thank God we are not left to our own. We're not left to our own devices. Thank God we have the presence of Jesus Christ. We have the presence of a faith community around us. So that when we struggle, that when we have failures, we can find support and we can find the guidance we need to overcome that. And that's exactly what happened with that lady that I mentioned at the beginning of my story. The beginning of the message today. Her story continues. As she and her husband eventually came to see me and they decided to fight for their marriage. And she and her husband fought for their marriage and they submitted themselves. They cut out the cancer and submitted themselves to one another and submitted themselves to God. And the last I heard, they and their two children are still together by the power of the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is freedom. There is healing that can happen even with one of these most devastating of sins and challenges that happen. And I want to finish by sharing with you some of the common steps while each situation is unique, there are some common steps that you can take. If you find yourself in a situation today or in the day ahead when you feel like you need to not just manage it, but slay it and start walking towards wholeness and purity of these things. And the first step is this, is to confess and to repent. It's important to look at these because it begins here by acknowledging that there is an issue. 
As long as you live in denial that this isn't an issue, I've got this, I can handle it, it's not a problem, I will overcome it one day. As long as you keep living in the taming situation, you are denying that there's an issue. It begins by acknowledging that there's an issue. There's an issue of lust. There's an issue of lingering looking. There may even be an issue of adultery. And it starts by acknowledging that if you want to find freedom, you have to acknowledge it and start there. Acknowledge that you, number one, have violated God's will. You have violated God's plan for you, for your partner. You've violated his plan for marriage. And we need to confess that to him. And if you are in the context of marriage, if you are married, and this is something that is happening, it's creeping at the door, maybe even gone beyond that, you also need to confess this to your spouse. If your marriage is going to survive, it does need to be confessed at that level as well. And this is where a pastor can help. This is where one of these couples who have married for 60, 65, 67 years perhaps can help. Can lead you towards the freedom that's possible through Jesus and through this path of confession. Because you see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sins. Even that one that we want to keep hidden. He died for that one too, but if we want to find freedom from it, we need to confess it and to receive his forgiveness. John 3, or John 8, 36 says, he who is set free by the Son is free indeed. And that's where we need to start. But as we confess and then we, re- we repent, repent also means to turn away from. So we got to cut it off and instead seek new godly passions in the midst of that. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That means the desires of our heart need to change. These passionate desires need to change in object and change in motive. We need to repent from the ones that they have been and turn to the ones that they need to be. To return to our first love. Allow the presence of Jesus Christ to come in and become our first love again. The gap that is filled by the absence of that sin needs to be filled with something. Fill it with the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ. He promised to be with us. He promised to give his Holy Spirit to us, to indwell within us, that he would convict us and and correct us and counsel us in these most difficult of times. But also, we need to turn another way as well. Because there are natural cravings that are to be exclusively met within the bond of marriage alone. And that means returning to our spouse as the source of those things. Now that may be easier said than done. But again, that's where work, commitment, and the counsel of a mentor or counselor can help. And if anybody has challenges with that, let me know. Let's talk. Which leads us to the third thing. Is that we don't just guard our hearts, but we need to live out the new passions of our hearts. The passions of God's heart that we're tapping into. And when we can do this, the amazing thing happens is we stop being defined by our lust and by sin and by failure because that's not who you are. That might be what you did, it might be what you do, but it is not who you are. If you have accepted Christ and received him into your life and if you are striving to live for him, if you are confessing and turning from the past, that is not who you are. Rather, you can be defined by Jesus. You can be defined by the new life that he makes possible within you that is revealed to you through his grace, truth, and love. And you can then go into the world and be an ambassador of those things. Where in the past, maybe you were enslaved with looking at things on the internet. You can go out and be a warrior against those things. Instead of objectifying a person, you can be a keeper of people. Instead of stealing life, you can build life in the world. And you can live out the new identity as you separate yourself from the old. 
as we reflect upon these three things, I want to invite the worship team to, to join me on the platform. I also want to invite you to, to stand right now as well and invite you to reflect upon these things and, and take a moment of prayer with me as well. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and, and if you are married and, and I pray and trust that, that adultery is not part of your story, but if, if it is, I want to pray for you. If it's not, but you know lust is an issue, then I can tell you that other things may be at the door. I want to pray for you as well. And perhaps you do not currently have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and as you hear about these hard things, as you reflect upon your own journey, you know that there's something within you relationally and spiritually that is broken due to failure of sin or failure of past decisions. And whatever those situations you may find yourself in, you, you probably commonly have the sense of, I just feel like I'm stuck. I feel like I've been defeated by my past. I've been defeated by my choices. And if that is how you identify yourself, if that is the thought going through your mind, I want you to know that it is the lie of the enemy. That he is trying to keep you there. He's trying to keep you from coming to bring that to Jesus Christ to confess it. To find freedom from it. Because Jesus came not just to dwell among us and to teach. He came to reveal the grace of God. The truth of God. The love. The abundant love of God to us all. And ultimately to give his life so that we could be set free and could live in that grace, truth, and love. The enemy lies to you and wants to define you by your failures and by your past. But Christ comes. And when he rules in your life, he defines you. He defines you as a beloved child of God. He welcomes you into his home. He says, you are chosen, you are not forsaken. I am for you, I am not against you. And I invite you to become a child of God. To reflect upon those things, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I simply begin by praying for the marriages within our church, Lord. God, you have given us such a beautiful, God-honoring group of people here at West Meadows. Lord, I feel so blessed to serve here. I thank you for these people, for their witnesses, for their testimony, for their long-serving faithfulness to you. God, as we think about that, there is nothing more than the enemy would love than to derail that. So God, I just begin by praying for the marriages of our church. God, I pray that you would protect them, that your hand would be upon them. Lord, that where challenges and strife, where where tension and, and difficulty may exist when someone's relationships, God, I pray for the presence of your spirit that that would not become a foothold for the enemy. But Lord, that people would be drawn together to remember their first love of you and the love that they maybe once had for the person that they committed to. God, I pray for a rekindling of marriages that need to be rekindled. I pray for a hand of protection over those that are under attack. And I pray for those that are strong and faithful to be active and witnesses amongst all of us the beauty of your plan lived out before us. Lord, for those in our midst who may be struggling with with lust issues, God, God, I pray that we will be a community that uplifts, that does not condemn, does not judge, does not cast out, but rallies, encourages, and points to the truth of Jesus Christ that has a healing power. Lord, as, as people's heads are bowed and 
and eyes are closed. If, we don't do this often, but if anyone wants to take a step and just have me pray for them right now specifically for that, just, I just ask you to take a moment of acknowledging that. And pray that you would find healing and forgiveness from that issue. Lord, for those who are reflecting upon this hard topic, this hard thing in their life, we do pray for the presence of your spirit to convict where it needs to happen, to confirm the way that they need to walk and counsel them on how to do that. And us too as a church, Lord, that we'd be faithful to do that. And Lord, for those of us who are here as well who maybe don't have that relationship with you but now see perhaps for the first time the way forward and freedom from those things which plague their lives, I pray, Lord, that they would give their hearts to you and that they would pray along with me and acknowledge us online and on site here and simply say, thank you, Jesus, for dying upon the cross for my sins, for paying the price that I could not, to bring freedom that I need. As you gave your life for me, I give you mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.